This podcast is produced by KPP Financial. Steve Peasley, President. KPP Financial. Independent thinking, shared success. And now today's podcast. You're listening to an encore presentation of Invest Talk. Please call with your questions and comments, though, 888 99CHART, 888 99CHART, and Steve will answer them on the next Invest Talk. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us today on Invest Talk. It is Monday. Uh, I'm Justin Klein, and I welcome you to Invest Talk in the weekday financial program that has one clear objective, and that is to help you grow and protect your investments. And of course, we welcome your phone calls and questions at 888 chart. That's 888-992-4278. So the big question is, will there be a Santa Claus rally? And I'm going to say, I think this month is going to be flat to down uh, because I, I just don't see a lot of catalysts beyond what we've already seen, right? Uh, the Fed is coming out with their report or their, their decision later this month, and they're going to indicate what they're planning to do for 2019. And right now, the expectations of the market is a dovish Fed, meaning a Fed that's planning to tighten less uh, next year than they previously planned. Uh, and I think the Fed can't do much better than that, right? Uh, can't say much more than that because they don't know what the economic numbers are going to come in at for next year, okay? So I think we're going to have a flat to down December, and I think we're going to have a flat to slightly up return on the S&P for the year. So I guess uh, that does it. Now, oil is coming off its worst month in a decade. Uh, high taxes on fuel in France has reached a breaking point, and there have been mass protests there, which uh, I think is an underrated news story. The fact that uh, one of the largest economies in Europe, in the European Union, is having civil unrest, not just uh, political infights, but actual riots. Uh, it's pretty interesting because I was actually in France earlier this year. I was in Paris uh, to, and to see cars on fire. I was at the uh, the Arc de Triomphe, which uh, if you saw the news, there was a, a statue within the Arc de Triomphe that I have pictures of myself that's just six months ago. And they smashed it and destroyed it. And to see kind of the that country come unraveled is uh, pretty impactful, especially since I was just there six months ago. Uh, and I think that's under an underrated story and just shows to, shows the political strain that we're seeing in the world today, especially in the European Union. Now, we saw an interesting story this morning at marketwatch.com, and it says, it turns out millennials are just like the rest of us, except poorer. And I'll explain later, but before I get to that, let's make time for a caller question. You know our number. As always, it's 888-99-CHART. How about if I go to Jim in Chula Vista? Hi, Jim. Hi, how are you today? Good. Thanks for calling. Sometimes I've heard you say the price of a stock is eighteen seventy-five. Yes. And you're going to place an order? Yes. But you don't buy it for eighteen seventy-five. you buy it cheaper? We try to, yes. Yeah, we always bid less. Okay, so in other words, when you get ready to do a trade, like on a stock trade or something, it'll have a bid and ask price? Yep. Okay, I didn't understand that. That's what I wanted to find out. Yeah, our stock market, all it is is an auction. Think about an auction. Someone is trying to sell you something, and someone else is trying to buy something. You guys got to get together on what price you want to pay for that. 
Well, you don't want to pay what someone is asking. You know? That's right. You always want to get it cheaper. That's right. We never, we never go to what they're asking. You know? I mean, but it's hard sometimes because we see what everybody is asking. You know, we see the depth of the market where it might be difficult for you as an individual to see it. We know that there's, oh, there's a bid there for this much and a bid there for this much. There's an offer for this much. You know, we see it. And we say, well, I'm going to put mine right here. And we wait to see if it comes and catches us. It's kind of like buying a house. Uh, they'll have an asking price. And then you say, well, that's a little steep, I think. I'll give you four fifty, exactly. but they're asking four eighty. That's exactly what it is, except that you're talking about a piece of real estate called a stock. Right. Very clarified. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Jim. Appreciate the call. Let's go to Matt in Cupertino. How you doing, Matt? Thanks for taking my call. A quick question for you is curious, in your opinion, versus mutual bond funds or individual bond ladders? I would rather see you buy a ladder of individual bonds than bond funds. Mm-hmm. You know why? You tell me. Bond funds now, you got to remember what a bond fund does. It buys a bunch of bonds. So you get nice diversification. That's a big plus, okay? Mm-hmm. But the net asset value of that bond fund will go up and down depending on interest rates, okay? Mm-hmm. So if interest rates are moving up and you have a bond fund, the net asset value of that fund will go down. You'll still get your yield, in other words, the dividends that are coming in through those bonds. You'll still get those. But if your yield is 5% and the bond fund net asset value goes down 5%, you're no further along. If you buy the bonds direct and you buy a good spread of very safe bonds, I'm not interested in high risk stuff. We're talking about very safe stuff. If you buy them and hold them to maturity, they also will go up and down in value, but you will always get your money back plus the yield if you hold them to maturity. Whereas in a bond fund, that doesn't happen. Even though they may hold them to maturity, but the bond fund value goes up and down based on the interest rates. So you can buy a personal bond and you can buy it and hold it and it will go up and down in value, but if you hold it to maturity, you'll get that money back. That's not necessarily so in a bond fund. That makes total sense. You saved me a few hours. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Matt. I appreciate the call. We have a program that does buy bonds. We hold in maturity inside there. So we know that they'll go up and down in value, but we'll get the yield and they'll go back to their par value when they mature so that you don't have that huge risk of a bond fund that will go up and down. Let's go to Peter in Anaheim. How you doing, Peter? Good. How are you, Steve? I'm doing good. Thanks. Thanks for the call. Thanks for taking my call. My question is about how to find out whether the institution is buying by looking at the level two time and sale window. Okay. This is how you do it. I don't know if you have the time, Peter, but if you're looking at an individual stock that you're considering, if you watch it for a few days on level two and everybody else, for everybody else, level two, you get to see the buys and sells, you get to see the offers and the bids, you get to see how big they are, and you get to see them click off, in other words, the selling and buying of the stock. So you get to know the size of the trade, the price movement of the trade, and the, how deep the level is, because level two takes you all the way down to all those people that are offering bids and asks, down deep. You know, I'm bidding $10, another guy's bidding $9.95, another guy $9.90, and you get to see their sizes. So, Peter, what you want to look for is what we call block trading. In other words, you'll see, you're looking at a company and it trades 500, 1,000, 200 shares, 150, 500 shares, and then you see a block of 10,000 shares trade. 
And then five minutes later, another block of 10,000 shares traded, either bought or sold. I can't tell you which. It doesn't matter which direction. With the prices going up or down, doesn't matter. I'm just trying to point out, watch for those big block trades. And Peter, that's when you know that institutions are either dumping the stock or buying the stock. Because you'll see the sell of a 10,000 at a lower price. They're willing to take a lower price. There's people, someone's dumping the stock. If you see it at a higher price, someone is gathering the stock, accumulating. That's the only way that you can tell recently, I mean, right now, whether someone is buying or some institution are buying and selling. Because if you wait for a month and or a month and a half and get the report on the number of shares traded and all that stuff, well, that, you know, it's kind of too late. So the transaction price is higher or lower relative to the bid and the ask? Yep, or, exactly. You'll see, like, all of a sudden, a, a 10,000 bid or, or a 10,000 ask will come in, and that tells you if they're dumping or, or buying. So right. you want to look for the action. Look for the action on the block trading, the big blocks. And you only do that if the stocks usually trades at 500 or 1,000. Some stocks trade at 10,000 and 30,000 shares normally. You're looking for that. If it's normally 10 to 20,000 shares traded, look for that 50,000 share block. If it's normally 100 to 500 shares traded, look for that 5,000 share block. You see how that works? Oh, I see. Because how, how about dark pool? Is it the well, transactions in the dark pool are recorded in the level two as well? Well, they record that sometimes they trade overnight and a big block happens and they get reported the next day and you you don't get to see it during the action of the day. But they're not as common as people think they are. It's usually an um, institution comes in and starts to position himself uh, over a period of days and sometimes weeks into a stock. And you'll see it at the action. Peter, I appreciate the call. Thank you, Steve. Good, good question. Thank you very much. Do you have questions about FDIC security, mortgages, money market funds, losses to your retirement plans? Give us a call today, 888-99-CHART. I'm Justin Klein, and I invite you to check out our new online training experience. It's called Invest Talk Academy. It's open now. After a quick one-minute break, I'll be back with the story comparing the financial analysis of millennials with preceding generations. But now I'm ready to take your questions. So give me a call, 888-99-CHART. You're listening to an encore presentation of Invest Talk. Please call with your questions and comments, though, 888 99CHART, 888 99CHART, and Steve will answer them on the next Invest Talk. 888 99CHART, 888 That's how you get through and ask your question on today's show, and I urge you to call in sooner rather than later. Now, according to a new study, it turns out the millennials, which are those born between 1982 and 2000, may have paid a price for the coming age, of coming of age uh, in the recession. And what the study finds is that millennials have lower real incomes than members of earlier generations at a similar age, and also have appeared to accumulated fewer assets. Now, millennials tend to be more racially and ethnically diverse, more educated, and spend more money on food away from home versus earlier generations. They're more likely to put off getting married, 
but their preference for consumptions don't differ significantly from earlier generations. For example, spending on cars is hump-shaped, meaning it starts low, picks up in the middle age, and then slows down. Uh, the study determined that average spending on vehicles by millennial households is consistent with this trend. Although that spending started below that of comparably aged Generation X households at the very beginning of the cycle. Now the two generations spending profiles appear to have come together, converged over time. Now most of the press reports uh, indicate that the young people were not interested in buying cars and they were published right after the financial crisis. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that they just couldn't afford it. Not that they didn't want to buy cars. Now, as the recovery has gained steam, they're becoming more like the previous generation. So over time, it appears that millennials are becoming more like everybody else. So there are some small differences. You know, I'm on the I'm kind of on the edge. Uh, I was born in '83. I'm 35. So. I kind of have that bridged gap where I see the habits and I have some of the habits of, of maybe younger people, but I have a lot of the habits of the older generation because I grew up when there really was an internet, you know, in the, my elementary, middle school, only really high school. Um, so I kind of have that, that bridge perspective and uh, younger people, they don't spend on a lot of material things that travel more, uh, more about experiences than buying a house and, and living in suburbia. That's just not something that uh, the average millennial tends to do. Now, it doesn't mean they're drastically different than the previous generations, because we aren't. Uh, but there are some iterations to consider. Now, today's market volatility makes it plain that it takes plenty of persistent discipline to build a strong investment portfolio and to fund your retirement savings. So when you get to the point where you realize that you would benefit from professional and unbiased guidance. I encourage you to reach out to myself and Steve at KPP Financial. You can call our Dana Point office, send us a message through investtalk.com. Now, this is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein. We have a singular mission here, and that is to help you grow and protect your investments. Now, to get started, I encourage you to take our free risk tolerance quiz at investtalk.com. The phone lines are open, and I'm ready for your questions, so give us a call now at 888 99 chart. Now is a good time to call Invest Talk. What's your question? 888 99 chart is how to reach Invest Talk right now. You're listening to an encore presentation of Invest Talk. Please call with your questions and comments, though, 888 99 chart, 888 99 C H A R T, and Steve will answer them on the next Invest Talk. 888 99 chart, 888 992 is how you got through and ask your question. Let's go to Amit in San Jose. I have a question about this lead curve. So the gap between the 10-year and the 2-year getting narrower and narrower, and with mm -hmm. the Fed raising the interest rate again this month, is there a real possibility that the yield curve can invert? And if it does so, which well, sectors will be affected? Well, the 3-year and the 5-year actually inverted today. Uh, so that was pretty interesting. Uh, that almost uh, means the, the market's kind of pricing in a recession sometime in the next 2-3 years. Uh, and 
the two and 10 years at the lowest level of this recovery. I think it's at 20 basis points or something like that. Uh, now, the, the sectors that do the worst or are hurt most by a flat or inverted yield curve tend to be the financials because they tend to borrow short and they lend long. And if their cost to borrow is higher than the amount that they're getting from lending long, uh, they're, they're either not going to make any money or make very little uh, and they're going to stop lending, right? So that's a sector that certainly won't do well in that type of environment. Thanks for explaining. Thank you very much. Any other questions? Uh, no, that's basically it. Thanks a lot. Thanks for explaining right. it. No problem. Thanks for calling. Now, today's main talking point, the four biggest mistakes first-time home buyers make and can be difficult and confusing to and an expensive process to begin with uh, buying a home and if you don't do it right then you can really lose your bargaining power even in a market like this which it's now a it's a buyer's market uh, so I'm gonna look into uh, what those mistakes are for most not just first-time home buyers but even just any buyer in general also in a follow-up to a meet are we in a recession yes we're in a recession we're in a recession right now. Not an economic recession, but a smartphone recession. A smartphone recession. I'm going to talk about uh, what those numbers look like and why and what that means for the players within the smartphone space. Also, Bitcoin. It broke down, was it last week, two weeks ago? And Bitcoin is I think on its way to becoming worthless now. Is it going to go away completely and all cryptocurrencies are gone? No. But Bitcoin and most other cryptocurrencies are going to be worthless and part of economic and investment history and the follies of hype and really the poster child of free money by central banks. And lastly, uh, Elliott Wave Theory, which is one way to analyze charts in the market, uh, has a there's, there's a couple ways the market can evolve over the next five, ten years or so, and I'll ex hopefully explain what those are. Good advice. Spread your money around. Stick to a well-thought-out plan for carefully divvying up your money so no single calamity will destroy your portfolio. Want to talk about it? 888-99-CHART is how to get through right now. Let's go to Mike in San Diego. How do you doing, Mike? I had a question about loaded versus non-loaded mutual funds. Okay. You know, obviously, the prudent guy would, would air towards the non-loaded funds to kind of save money and initially right. upfront return right. on your investment, that type of thing. Yes. But uh, I recently read something on like A shares versus B shares and, and some of those arguments. Right. And I was kind of confused on what is the actual benefit of a loaded fund or is there any? I will always tell you never buy a loaded fund because you can find just as good managers and no load funds. So why buy a loaded fund? And let me explain that to the other listeners. A loaded mutual fund is one where they you pay a commission to buy it. There are no load funds, meaning no commission funds out there also. A loaded fund is sold to you by somebody, and they make that commission, usually 5%. A loaded fund could make up that 5% and make a ton of money and, and would be fine. You could do that. But the loaded fund has to overcome that commission before you start making money. 
So the process is why buy a loaded fund when you can buy a no load fund and you don't have to have that. You don't have that hurdle. Of course, there are some very good managers in loaded funds. But there's also very good managers in no load funds. So my take is always buy a no load fund. That problem is, is that means that puts homework to you to find them. A lot of people don't want to go through that work. They just go to a, you know, a, a, a broker and let him decide and he'll put you in a loaded fund because that's how he makes his money. Now, what about the... A shares, B yeah, shares, C shares. When you talk about loaded funds, they have different ways to charge a commission. Sometimes it's upfront 5%. Those are called A shares, Mike. They're always upfront. 5%, you give them $1,000, they're going to take 5% of that right off the top and you're only going to be investing you know, 950 bucks. Right. That's A shares. B shares are, they're going to charge you that same 5%, but they're going to charge you only 1% after each of the next five years. 1% of whatever the value is after the, each of the five years. These are what these A, B, C, D, and goes on and on and on. Different methods of getting their commission from you. Now, if you ask me which is better, A shares, B shares, C shares, I will tell you A shares up front. Why? Well, because if you bought B shares and they charge you 1% a year, they charge it on the value of the fund. So the fund grew 10% the first oh, you're, year, yeah, you're, yeah. you're paying 10% more fee. Yeah, exactly. Second year, if it grew 20% over the two years, you're paying 20% more fee, 1% again. Okay. So A shares, if you're going to buy a load fund, I'd rather see you buy A shares. It's not like a bond rating where it's the quality of the no. investment. No, okay. it has nothing to do with that. Okay. Nothing, that's, Mike. That's where I was going. Okay. Okay. Great. Thanks. Thanks for the call. Now, tomorrow on Invest Talk, how HSA's health savings accounts offer a triple tax benefit. I'm Justin Klein, and I'm ready to take your questions now at 888 chart You are listening to Invest Talk, and KPP principals Steve Peasley and Justin Klein invite you to join them for their next free live webinar. Thursday, December 27th, 6.30 p.m. Pacific Time. Understand the current market environment. Develop a plan to manage the risk in your portfolio. Plus, get a special webinar preview of 2019 and learn where to expect to find investment opportunities. An all-new live webinar December 27th, and it's free. All you have to do is register at investtalk.com. Okay, You've got finance and investment questions, and the lines are open. Call now, 888-99-CHART. You're listening to an encore presentation of Invest Talk. Please call with your questions and comments, though, 888-99-CHART, 888-99-CHART, and Steve will answer them on the next Invest Talk. Now, today's main talking point is about the four biggest mistakes first home, first time home buyers make, but this could apply really to anyone. Uh, we're clearly in a housing market that is no longer a seller's market. It is, it is clearly a buyer's market. Now, small subsets of certain markets, maybe not the case, but in general, especially in the coast, California, Seattle, Northwest, uh, those type of areas, sorry, Northeast, I meant, uh, those type of areas that the median home value is close to a million dollars or more, those are, are more affected by higher interest rates. And that's what you're seeing right now. Okay. So we're in a buyer's market, but does that mean you should go out and buy? Well, 
to me, it's a market where you are patient and you only buy homes that come on market that fit all of your criteria because the market is very unlikely to switch to a back to a seller's market within the next six months, even 12 months. Okay. Uh, but if you're looking to buy, you need to make sure you understand what you're getting into, uh, understand the cost of buying. And the first is closing cost. Uh, a lot of people think you just need that 10% down or 20% down. And I would say in this market, you want to make sure you have 20% down. Right? You're not trying to squeeze yourself into a home. If you can't afford not only 20% down, but the added 2 to 3% of total closing costs that it typically takes to get a home closed. Okay, So make sure that you have that full 20% down as well as close, closing costs. Then you got to make sure your credit score is up to par. You don't want to be going in, uh, looking for, uh, getting above market interest rates because your credit score is sub 700, right? You want to have 700, preferably 725 or higher, right? And if it isn't, you need to take those steps now. Start to if you're going to be in the market, you're looking to eventually buy in the the near, you know, year two years. Save, get that 20% plus closing costs, and improve your credit score. And then number three mistake a lot of people make is that they fall in love with the home, right? They, they go in and they see a fancy kitchen and uh, totally remodeled and they start to fall in love and get into unnecessary bidding wars, okay? Uh, when in reality, you should be looking at the area that you're buying and the, the neighborhood that you're buying and that's far more important than the home, a, 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 a poor, designed or an outdated home in a really good neighborhood is a much better buy than a newer home in a poor neighborhood, okay? So make sure that you don't get emotional with your buying decision. And then lastly, you want to not only get pre-qualified, which that's what a lot of people get, but they want they they don't get take that next step and get pre-approved. Because when you go pre-approved, you can say I have cash. I'm a cash buyer. And, and what pre-approval means is the bank has said, we 100% are going to give you a loan for X amount. That doesn't mean you should spend that entire dollar amount. But what it does is it gives you that firepower of making an all cash offer. All right. So those uh, are the steps you need to take. And like I said, be patient in this buyer's market. Steve, Santa Rosa, how you doing, Steve? Given the volatility that you are speaking about, as a, a fairly non-sophisticated investor and someone with not a, a whole lot of money to invest at one time, how do you feel about whole life insurance products and, and the cash value and the rate of return that those can give you and the lack of volatility there too? Okay, Steve, I'll let you, let you know I, my background is insurance. I worked for years and years and years in the insurance business in New York City. I'll tell you, the whole life, the universal life, I really think that they do you a disservice. If you need life insurance, I've always suggested to everybody, just buy term life. It's really, really cheap. Just do this math, Steve, if you would. Take the difference between term life, you know, the premium you had to pay. Let's say you have to pay $20 a month. And then to get the same coverage, same amount of life insurance coverage, for whole life, take the difference, and then start doing the math. Just put it, uh, do a factor like like they do. Use the same factor the insurance companies do to determine how much your gains are going to be over the next ten years. 
You'll find that if you do it yourself, just buy an index fund in the stock market, using their same numbers, the insurance company's same numbers, you'll be light years ahead in return. Why? Because insurance companies charge a lot of money, a lot more than you imagine on that management of those funds for you. Okay. I would not do it. You'll be a lot further ahead if you buy term and just take the difference and invest in the stock market over time. What about the fact that the whole life is tax-deferred going in and tax-free coming out when you pull that benefit or that cash It's value? only tax-free if you annuitize it. There's capital gains tax are being built. It's tax-deferred. It's not tax-free unless you turn it into an annuity at the end of that period. And then annuities are even more expensive. It would be a lot smarter to open up a Roth IRA or a regular IRA and put that money in there. Okay. Just do the math. That's all I ask. Or I'll do the math for you. Call me at the office. I'll show you. And I don't sell an insurance box. I don't care. I just don't like them. I worked in that industry. They're not bad. I'm not saying they're bad. It's just that I know you can do better in a different way. Even without the risk? I mean, the insurance... I see that I'm at least looking at seem yes. that uh, there's almost no risk. Yeah, they like to tell you that. It's amazing how they like to say that, but then they tell you to invest in the stock market or they invest your money in the stock market because they know in any 10-year period in history, the stock market has always gone up. That's how they can say that. The annuity part, they like to guarantee your returns. They'll never go below this if you did. But you know what? I meet too many people that are still stuck in their whole life and universal life and they really can't get out of it. If they sell it early, they'll get hit with these big tax bites. Steve, I'm telling you, it's not the best way to go. All right, thanks. Good, good luck. Thanks for listening. David Freeman. How you doing, David? I'm all right, Steve. Thank you so much for taking my call. Thank you. I want to ask you something. I believe you agree with me if I tell you that uh, investing uh, in properties, you know, real estate, you know, at some point is, uh, you know, it's kind of painful uh, going through, you know, vacancies and trying right. to make this uh, place to be in a market and rent it again. Right. And uh, I was looking at getting the option and invest in stocks. And um, I read I read it the other day that uh, investing stocks, uh, the returns is better than real estate. Are you agree with that? Yeah, over long terms, yes, it is better than real estate. There's different kinds of risks, though. Uh, real estate is much less risky, David, in the long run. Stocks are more risky. Therefore, there should be a better return in stocks, and there is over long periods of times. I mean, I'm not in, in stocks. I mean, I, I don't know how uh, how that works, and I, uh -huh. I I understand very little. I mean, there's companies out there that say, okay, uh, we manage, you know, your portfolio. Just if you have a certain uh, yeah. amount of money, that's what we and, do. And uh, we mm -hmm. we can manage for for you, you know. Yeah. But I mean, you guys do like say you guys buy and sell it uh, on the right time. So yeah, what well, we so the uh, yeah. yeah, David, a money manager such as us, KPP Finance, that's our firm. You know, you uh, allow us to trade your account. Basically, that's what's happening. And we will buy and sell mutual funds or stocks, depending on the kind of account you have and you want and how much money you have. We will manage your account for you. And you pay us a small quarterly fee to do that. So you guys, uh, let's say you guys have a stock that you guys like it, and you guys just uh, purchase and yep, that's what it is? Yeah. We make the decisions of buying and selling for you. You just look at your account and make sure that no one's stealing your money. <laughs> and the way to do that is you use a, uh, a insured SIPC, SIPC insured custodian. Someone, a company, a big company that's insured by our government holds on the money. Therefore, if you do that, then a money manager can't get the money. Like Bernie Madoff. That's what he did. Yeah. He, he was a custodian of his, of his client's money, so he just stole it. 
Don't do that. Uh, like me, I mean, you guys uh, you do that for a living. Yeah, I mean, you That's guys right. manage. I don't understand those charts, you know, uh, what to buy, when that to buy, uh, yeah. you know, what price you should sell it. I mean, I tried that before, and I lost. Yeah, most I mean, people. I never met many on, on stocks. I hate to say this. Most people try it. And we know, Justin and I and my firm, we know they're not probably going to be successful. We'll be happy to teach you, but it takes so much work, David. It takes a lot of time and effort. You know, and knowledge. We, oh, not just that. You can try and try all you want, but if you don't really have the knowledge and the expertise to really understand a lot that goes on in the markets, not just about specific companies, but the economy in general, uh, different types of assets and things like that. And so that's why you hire people like us. It's as simple as that. David, okay. if you want to talk about it, give me a call at the office or send me an email, and I'll talk about it and tell you how we do yeah, it and what definitely. we do. Definitely. I would like to, because, uh, I mean, I already have two properties, the rental, and mm -hmm. I know it's a pain in the rear, and, uh, you know, I would like to. They are a pain. I, I have There's something else besides that. Yeah, I've had rentals for many, many years. They are a pain, I must say. David, give me a call. Yeah. We'd love to talk to you. All right. Very good, Steve. Thank Thanks you. so much. This is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein, and I hope you are making the right choice with the money in your 401k. We have a math-based we have math-based models to guide you in and out of the market, and we can monitor and advise you, and then you take action. It's called Active 401k. It's at investtalk.com. Now we've still we still have some time to take your questions. We have uh, what are we? 10 minutes left? 15 minutes left? Something like that. So if you're gonna call, do it sooner rather than later. Give me a call at 888-99-CHART. This is Invest Talk, made possible by KPP Financial, where their commitment to reason and common sense guidance can help make you a better investor. We are headed into the final trading sessions of 2018, and now may be a smart time for you to ask KPP principals Steve Peasley and Justin Klein for help with your portfolio. Start with a no-obligation phone call to the KPP Financial Office in Dana Point, California, or send Steve and Justin a message through investtalk.com. The InvestTalk radio and podcast continues now. The phone lines are open, and you can call with your questions. 888-99-CHART. 888-99-CHART, 888-992-4278. That's how you get through and ask your question on today's show. Now we are in a recession, officially. And when I say that, I don't mean an economic recession, I mean a smartphone recession. And the latest figures, either from IDC or Strategy Analytics, both have smartphone shipment declining by anywhere from six to 8% year over year uh, in the third quarter. Okay, so IDC has about 355 million units shipped. Strategic Analytics has 393 million. But either way, you know, they use different calculations. But uh, what is a smartphone? What isn't a smartphone? But either way, it's down. And it has declined for four consecutive quarters, which means it's a recession. And the uh, counterpoint research predicts that global smartphone market will contract, contract for the first time this year, 2018. And they think it'll be a, a, a decline about 1%. But over the previous five years, average growth rate was 16%. So you see how dramatic a slowdown we have had in smartphone sales. And 
that is a big reason why Apple is down so much. They're the biggest, most profitable smartphone maker out there. And CounterPoint cited a few reasons why we're in this situation. One is pricier handsets. You know, Apple has been increasing the price of their iPhones slowly. And they see a slowing economy as well as market saturation. You know, smartphones are everywhere. Almost everybody has one. Uh, and so there isn't, especially in the U.S., developed markets, that's what you have. And you almost can't live now without a cell phone, and it's probably going to be some version of a smartphone. And the industry is struggling, and they're struggling to come to terms with diminished carrier subsidies. Remember, what was that, three, four, five years ago, when if you signed a two-year contract, you could get a free iPhone, right? Well, what are you going to do? You're not going to sit there and use this old iPhone when you can just walk into an AT&T store, a Verizon store, and they'll pay for a brand new iPhone for you to use. You're going to keep going. You're going to keep going in and getting new iPhones. That's going to be great for them. Great for Apple. But now that it costs you a thousand, you know, it's spread out over maybe 18 months, it's still costing you money. And so it's creating longer replacement cycles. Inventory is building up in several regions, including China. And all, on top of that, there's not a lot of great hardware design innovations. You know, I use a, an iPhone 8 Plus. I like the, the Touch ID. I don't love the Face ID. I did just buy a new iPad Pro, the new one that came out. Uh, so I like that. And that has the Face ID. And, you know, it's, it's good in its own way. But there was never anything wrong with Touch ID. Works very, very well, still works very well. And screen's nice and big and clear. I mean, there's not much difference. My girlfriend has an, an iPhone 10 and, and she likes mine better. So the hardware design isn't really that exciting. And China is a third of all smartphone sales and China's economy is slowing. And so this is where the problem lies. Now, Apple's iPhone market share is up from 125 to 13%. But that reflects mainly a shrinking market or a market that, uh, you know, Apple sales are maybe flat, but the market is shrinking. So their market share is rising. So it's pretty interesting. Now we're in that phase. Remember when computers were the big growth phase? Everyone had needed a, a desktop and people were buying laptops. And all. And then eventually everyone had one. And then the replacement cycle started to go, instead of you know consistent growth of new people buying their first desktop, it was replacement. And then replacement cycle was five years or so. And I think that's where you're getting in the smartphone market. And so when you're looking at components makers, you're looking at Apple and a lot of these smartphone makers, that's why you're seeing their stock struggle, their business struggle because of a recession in smartphones. This is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein. Our Monday program is wrapping up soon. We still have about 10 minutes left in the program. Remember, we can keep our anytime listener line open around the clock. So you can call now or later and leave your investment questions. But at the moment, I'm taking your calls live at 888-99-CHART.
You're listening to an encore presentation of Invest Talk. Please call with your questions and comments, though, 888 99 Chart, 888 99 C H A R T, and Steve will answer them on the next Invest Talk. Hey, Steve and Justin. I'm a beginning options trader, and I just wanted your opinion. I'm looking to buy puts on some of the FANG stocks. What I want to know is what do you think is a good way to hedge your puts? So I guess what I'm asking is. What time frame do you typically buy options for if you're looking at it going down? And then do you typically buy them in the money or out of the money? I understand they're cheaper out of the money, but are you just buying puts out of the money if you believe it's going to drop dramatically? Or do you typically buy in the money for a longer period of time? That way you have higher odds of getting a return based on, well, depending on the premium. So just looking for a general rule of thumb. I know it's kind of hard for you to just give me general advice in regards to this. But if you give me some guidance, I'd greatly appreciate it just so I have a better idea of a how to play my puts. Thanks, I'll be listening on the podcast. Uh, great question. Uh, definitely a complex uh, for, for most people out there because most people aren't trading options. Um, but when you're buying options, you know we, we have a program where we sell options. We're selling covered calls. So we're a bigger fan of being option sellers versus option buyers uh, in a covered sense. Um, but when it comes to buying puts uh, or buying options in general, anyway, whether it's a put or a call, uh, you want to look for long. The longer out you go, the better, uh, and, and that's that's what I would go with. Um, so I would maybe go slightly out of the money and longer, uh, and I'm talking six months plus. Uh, it's for your play to um, play out uh, because option decay in those last 30 60 90 days is fast uh, that's why we sell typically options that are 45 60 days out uh, because we get that option decay for clients so um, that's the the way I would do it if you are looking to hedge yourself um, then maybe you can sell some uh, out of the money calls if you're betting on the market going down um, or the, the price of the stock going down is one way to do it. Uh, it's obviously dangerous because basically you're, you're shorting the stock. Uh, so there's a lot of complexities to options. Um, I, would, I would say start slow. You said you're new. Uh, it's a very complex game. Uh, and I would look for to create some sort of strategy to where you're selling options as well. Covered call strategy, something like that. But uh, uh, buying puts, especially in volatile fang names, can be very lucrative as well. But you got to really know what you're doing. So usually buy a longer term option as you possibly can. Now, speaking of risky, let's talk about Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is broken down. And you know, a year ago now, people were talking about, or at least the enthusiasts were talking about, the price of Bitcoin hitting a million dollars a coin. Today, it's a very different conversation. And we're basically talking about whether Bitcoin has any value at all. And I would argue it, it doesn't, at least in the current form. Uh, why? Because the value of anything is what is underneath the surface, right? The, the surface is what's the price? What's the recent price performance been? Underneath the surface is what gives that asset value, right? And we're down 80% from the peak on Bitcoin prices and it's on its way to becoming worthless. Why? Because it's near or below the cost of 
mining it. Now, as it goes down, more people are going to drop off as miners, and you've already seen graveyards of Bitcoin mining machines that are no longer being used because they're just not fast enough to compete uh, with uh, other miners, and it, uh, the cost to run the machines, the electricity, uh, is just too expensive. And you've already seen this ha shake out, and as it goes lower, it's going to continue to do that. And as m less and less Bitcoin is mined, the blockchain is not sustained. Uh, and this is what one of the big flaws with with any with blockchain in general is that it takes a lot of energy to maintain that blockchain, okay? Uh, as well as many other flaws. There are a lot of flaws in in the blockchain technology, uh, and it's being used to some degree, uh, but in general, it's just not good for being a currency. And that's why I don't think in the current form you're going to see cryptocurrencies have much value in the near term. Now, long term, you could have some innovations and things could change, uh, but I don't think that's anywhere in the near future and you're much better putting your money in something that is going to be more productive. Let that space mature and 10, 20, 30 years from now, then I think it'll come back at some point and probably with a vengeance, especially with how reckless central banks have been and probably will be in the future. I'm Justin Klein and this completes another Invest Talk program and I think I thank you for your loyal support and questions. For podcast listeners, you'll be learning much more about Y-Charts. Did you know that you can get a free Y-Charts trial as well as a good discount when you buy and if you mention InvestTalk? Steve and I use Y-Charts almost every day. Thanks for listening. Good night. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them specifically. Nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell securities. Such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis, and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein Pavlis Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor, which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is President and Justin Klein Chief Executive Officer of Klein Pavlis Peasley Financial. And they thank you for listening and welcome your comments or questions on our 24-hour listening line at 888-99-CHART.